I would ask you to take your Bibles and to join me in the book of Judges, chapter 7. You know that one of the primary and elemental parts of worship is the reading of God's Word. When we do this on Sunday morning, sometimes we take it for granted. But even now, sitting at home, I would encourage you to open to this chapter and to follow along as I read it. I am going to read the entire chapter 7, and I believe that uh, we will benefit from what its words have to tell us and what it indeed has to say. Chapter 7. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Haran. So the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, This one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. It happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were there in the camp. Now the Midianites and Amalekites and all the people of the east were lying in the valley, as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number as the sand of the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. He turned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. 
Then he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. And the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp. And the whole army ran and cried out and fled. When the three hundred blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. And the army fled to Bethacatia toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah by Tabath. And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh and pursued the Midianites. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites, and seize from them the watering places, as far as Bethbara and the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together, and seized the watering places as far as Bethbara and the Jordan. And they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued Midian, and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. May the Lord add his blessing to the very reading of his word. We know that it is indeed a constant struggle for Christians to find acceptance and comfort in being a minority belief group. We respond to this fact of being in the small minority in ungodly ways many, many times. Fear, Bitterness, doubt. But God always seems to be reminding his people that he wants them to not be concerned with numbers. To not be concerned with numbers, but to be concerned with him. All of Scripture is meant to keep God as the focus and focal point. When we start to look at our own selves as what God needs, when we start to feel that we are essential to fulfill God's plan and to fulfill God's will, then we have entered into paganism and idolatry. It's true. When we are important and essential to fulfill God's plan, we have left the bounds of biblical Christianity and have entered into a paganistic thought process. So here we are with Gideon. We spoke last week and we saw in chapter 6 about Gideon's calling, about the evidence that Gideon received, about the assurance that Gideon received to be God's servant. And now here he is, Gideon, the judge of Israel, the called servant of God, the one who has the confidence, the one who has the hand of God on him. Here he is with 32,000 men at his side. That's an impressive army no matter what age you're in. 32,000 men is no joke. But God is very plain with the reality that his people 
are to be are among the smallest of people. At the top of your outline, which you have in your email, you will see the Lord does not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you are the least of all peoples. Deuteronomy 7, 7. He reminds them, you were the smallest. You were among the most difficult. You were among the, the least impressive of peoples, and I chose you. Not because of you, but because of me. And so here... He's been given 32,000 men. He finally has the army. And what does the word of God say? (laughs) It says, there are too many of you. What? Too many? Too many people? Why? Why? Why are there too many? Let's go in, let's have a quick victory, and let's walk away, and let's rejoice. No. But he says, yes, there's too many of you. Remember, the very reason you exist, both here in this situation and you here today, the very reason you exist is for the glory of God. You need to glorify God. And with 32,000 men, you would glorify yourself. God's name will be praised, and no one else's name will be praised. And that's the reality. And that's what God is insisting on here. And he explains in verse 2 that one of the primary reasons is so that there is no doubt, both for you and for your spiritual growth, as well as for the testimony of the whole world, so that there is no doubt about the power and direction of God. He says, lest you say, my own hand has saved me. It is good for us to take a step back and and to consider who we are and where we are in life. Always good to take a step back and consider that. Now, I am all for good education. I am all for pursuing to the greatest extent of the opportunities that you have to build yourself up and to improve yourself. I'm all for that. The Bible is all for that. God is for that. But be sure that that is not the reason that you give yourself when you examine your life for success. When you catch yourself saying, well, so-and-so went to a good school, of course they're in a good place. Or you catch yourself saying, so-and-so comes from a good family. Or so-and-so has a good personality. Or so-and-so just had the right, the right situation, the right place at the right time, and so he ended up in a good, successful, comfortable place. Or he's a successful, or she's a successful person because of these things. You have lost the focus. And instead of putting the glory in God, you're putting the glory in yourself. I believe that we are learning from this passage that it is better to be at a disadvantage for God's glory than to have a great advantage that both you, your ego, and the doubting peoples of the world will point at and say, well, look at those credentials. Of course they're successful. Anyone in the world could have said, there's 32,000 men. Of course they defeated the Midianites. But God says, no, I want you to be at a disadvantage. And churches that are small and helpless, yeah, small and helpless, like the early church, like the apostles' ministry, like the Lord Jesus' ministry, or often the ones that God uses in the purest and best form for his glory. 
not my own hand, but by God's power. Not by money, not by success, not by fame, not by buildings, not by programs, not by volunteers, not by all the accoutrements, not by all the impressiveness that the world seems to look for, but by God's power. And our natural reaction is, you know, things just don't work that way. The world doesn't work that way. You're absolutely right. The world doesn't work that way. But God works that way. So, the narrative continues. There are too many for you. There are too many. You have too many. Most cannot live in a situation where they are among the smallest and among the most inadequate. Most are not comfortable with that. Um, and what you see is that this principle, this biblical principle, is a real sifter of character. A real sifter between wheat and chafe sometimes. Between wheat and tares. Most Christians, Christians, do not want to rely on the Lord and at the first challenge of discomfort, will leave for greener pastures. What's the first thing that God does to lessen the amount of the army? He says, who, is, who here is afraid? Who here is afraid of loss, of reality, of hardship, of war? Who is afraid? And guess what? 22,000 of the 32,000 leave and go home. The vast majority leave and go home. They're just not interested in the work of the Lord, no matter what. Sure, sitting in a camp was okay, but not any real challenge. No, that's not okay. And don't you dare make me test my faith over my life. No, my life is more important than my faith. And um, don't you dare. 22,000 go home. 10,000 remain. Consider that situation. With 10,000, you have a fair amount of showing. But not any real security. Not the same way. You just lost the bulk of your people. You just lost the bulk of your strength. And what does God say? He says 10,000 is still too many. Too many. And he uses the situation that you read about, of the drinking of the water, and we end up with 300 left. 300. The reality of the 300 is that, by all intents and purposes, it is impossible for 300 men to beat the army of the Midianites. And that is exactly where God wants his judge and where God wants his people at that time. To be in a situation where, in human terms, it is impossible to accomplish anything great. When you think that in human terms, you are diminishing God's work. When you think that in human terms, you are limiting God by limiting resources. You're missing the point of this passage. If it were, when you say to yourself, if it were only up to biblical Christians to do the work of God, the world would be in trouble. If it were only up to reformed Christians... To do the work of God or to preach the gospel, the world would be in trouble. You know those Reformed Christians. 
They, they're just not as active as other Christians or as the people who maybe are, are, le- are looser in their understanding of Christianity. If you start to go down the road of, if it's only up to this group, we're doomed, then you are not learning the, the thought and the lesson of this passage. Here, it was only up to 300 men. And God's lesson is, you didn't need the others. Just like when we're thinking about God's work, God's spirit, God's movement on the earth, God's kingdom, what do you need? Do you need government? Do you need institutions? Do you need parachurch ministries? Are all these things essential needs? God can throw all this away and have 300 people on the earth, and he can still accomplish his task to do what he will and to glorify himself. You need God. As an individual, as a group, as a church, you need God and God alone. So how do we live out this understanding? How do we take this and make it even more practical than it already is here in the passage? You know very well that people want to be part of something. People want to be part of something that seems bigger than themselves. That's why we have movements. That's why we have rallies. That's why we have conferences. That's why we have conventions. People like to go. They like to see other people that have stuff in common with themselves and makes them feel good, and they like to feel that they're part of something big, part of a movement. I'm going to submit to you that God fights that from a pride and humanistic level. When the people of earth built the Tower of Babel, God says, you know what, I'm going to destroy this and I'm going to scatter you because you're going to unite and you're going to think that you are God. And there's something to be said for human beings united, uniting against God. The Bible, throughout its passages, from Genesis to certainly Revelation, shows that human beings like to come together to feel that they are part of a big movement and unite against God. And we see that in our culture and our society today. When we live out an understanding that we are minority, I encourage you not to look for assurance in numbers or strength. You and no army with God are enough. Oh my, David and Goliath. We take that as a cliche sometimes. David is the one guy who rests on faith, and because of God's power, though he's insignificant and unlikely, defeats the giant. God's power, God's glory alone. But that's not all that this passage has to teach us about resting in God and about God being our only Savior and our only salvation. This passage also shows us and teaches us that God's going to carry it to even more of a ridiculous step. He's going to use unusual and unrealistic means of action. In addition to no strength, in addition to no showing of anything impressive, God is going to use his small remnant and then have them do something of no real effect, something that actually appears pointless and stupid. He's going to have his very small group of people do something that looks pointless and that looks stupid. And that's how he's going to accomplish his his goal here. We see that the enemy flees at God's instruction. Obedience 
God's instruction, the enemy flees. The text tells us that God is so in control of every person and of every situation that he has already prepared the Midianites to flee. He gives them dreams. He unsettles them. He shows them that the sword of the Lord and of Gideon is on its way and that, you know what? They are a lot more terrified than they should be of 300 men. The course is set. God has said it. And whatever you go into, whatever challenge you face, understand that God has set the course and God knows the future and God has prepared the way. We look at what they do. (laughs) They break pitchers. They blow trumpets. And they have torches. And then they shout, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Anybody who were to read this without the view that this is a biblical account would say, what are they, a bunch of clowns? What are they doing? That sounds like a party gone wrong. But God says, no, this is my instruction. And when you do it, the enemy will flee. No, it's not practical. No, it doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't really accomplish anything from a human sense. But that's the point. The parallel, the thing that my mind is drawn to, is Jericho. What do they do? They march around the city and the walls fall. Well, who gets credit for that? The marchers? The people who smashed the pictures here? No, God gets the credit. God's victory was won. It may have been stupid, but God's victory was won. And lest you think for a minute that that is not still how God works, or how we should respond when God gives instruction, think again. We are all aware, all of us Christians, we are all aware that our salvation is all by God's power, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. We are all aware that that salvation was accomplished by one individual, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are aware that God used crucifixion, death, and resurrection to accomplish it. We are so saturated with the awe of the crucifixion and of Christ's death that it has become something religious to us. and, And rightly so. Rightly so that there is awe in it. But consider what it was originally, and you probably have before. It is horrible, and it is unimpressive. A really unknown, basically, simple person with no real education, who worked as a carpenter, who has no uh, great social history, is put to death as a criminal in the most brutal of ways. And that is how God accomplishes eternal life. Through death, he accomplishes eternal life for the world, for all who would believe, for all his people forever and ever. Now, you tell me how practical that is. Now, you tell me how flashy that is. Now, you tell me how impressive that is and how logical that is and how much that makes sense. 
No. God uses unusual and unrealistic means of action to accomplish his purpose, and he has done it here with the resurrection, here with the crucifixion. And with resurrection, oh, with resurrection we have victory, we have finality, we have life, praise the Lord. But also understand that just as it is impossible for 300 men to beat a very large army in this circumstance of the passage at hand, it is impossible by our human means to raise someone from the dead. It is impossible by our own human power to do that. And God is doing that so that we don't say we have saved ourselves. He uses unusual and unrealistic means so that he gets all the glory, so that he gets all the focus, so that he gets all the attention. We cannot save ourselves. But the enemy certainly does flee at God's instruction. As the enemy flees at Christ's salvation, accomplished. Accomplished in a ridiculous, unlikely way, but accomplished in that way as a fact, nonetheless. Believe and see his power. Believe and know the Lord. Believe and have eternal life by your faith through his grace. It doesn't end there. The instruction doesn't end there. All these Old Testament accounts relay into the church today. Small remnant, no real power, no real influence. Small group. Ridiculous means. What's God's instruction to the church? How do you save souls? How do you go about the work of the Lord? Go and talk to people. That will change lives. Not programs, not seminars, not feats of strength, not practices, not stations, not sacraments that you've made up. Talk to people. The Word of God. The communication and the preaching of the Word of God is how God imparts His grace and leads people to Himself. How silly does that seem? Prayer as an effective gift of God. I've said before, prayer is designed to look stupid, just like smashing pitchers and blowing trumpets look stupid. But prayer is designed to look stupid to show one's dependence on God and to show one's rest in Him. Not in logic, not in what seems effective, but in the power that binds and holds and controls and guides everything. Baptism. Pouring water or immersing in water. As a symbol and sign and seal of the covenant of grace imparting the grace of God. It's ridiculous. But God says it. And does end the enemy flees. Communion. Eat and drink and do this in remembrance of me. Weird. But God says it, and the enemy flees. Word and sacrament, not by might, nor by strength, but by God's power. Where is your faith? As you are a Christian living in the 21st century, amongst a small group of Christians that seems to be getting smaller all the time, where is your faith? 
Is your faith looking to impressive movements, impressive political movements? Are you looking to an impressive church? Are you looking to bodies filling seats? Or are you looking to word and sacrament? The 300 were good enough. The one man, the one God man on a cross was good enough because God's power had ordained it. There's nothing outrageously different about Gideon and his 300 than you. They were all human beings. They were all in a situation where their faith was certainly tested. They were all in a situation where they could have gone their own way and fled with the other uh, 22,000. But they obeyed God. They saw him save, and they saw him deliver, and they could testify of his work. Well, you've seen him save, you've seen him deliver, you've seen him use ridiculous things, you've seen him use unlikely things, you've seen him turn things that seem disastrous and horrific into into glorious things that uplift him. Tell the old, old story. Testify of that faith. A faith that is in God and not in the self. How will you live, live out these truths and these realities? We're in a situation right now in this world that's certainly outside of our total control. You can't concentrate and focus hard enough to heal a sickness. You can look for a cure scientifically, sure, but God has buried that in his creation as it is. You can't will a sickness away. You can't pay a sickness away. You're in a situation that is outside of your control. And this current virus mess shows us that. So what are you going to do? Put your faith in God. Tell of his excellent glory. You say, well, what if there's a quarantine? How do I do that? I'm stuck at home. I'm stuck at home now, right? (laughs) The very gift of broadcasts that is being used to share this message can be used to tell of his excellent greatness on your behalf. Don't share stupid memes. Be careful with that. Be careful with the articles you post. Be careful of broad, uncontextual tweets. I would encourage you to use messenger or text message or even old-fashioned at this point, email, to reach out to an individual to talk to encourage, and to disciple. Don't look to somebody else to do it. You do it. Use your means given to you to tell the old, old story and testify of a faith in God, not in the self. Rest in the word and the plan of the Lord. Rather than run away into selfishness and ungodliness... As is very easy to do when there's fear. Who among you is afraid? 22,000 run away. Don't do that. But rest in the word and plan of the Lord. Rest in God's commands. Trust his work through unusual means. Even in sickness, God may be glorified. If God can be glorified through crucifixion, then God can be glorified even in a horrendous situation. We've seen throughout the scriptures where he takes horrible situations, turns them on their head, and uses it for his glory. Pray for that. Look for that. In unusual circumstances, you alone may be the unlikely remnant God uses to save or to build or to further for his glory. You. 
Even though you're only one person, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. 300 people, you. And have a confidence in his victory despite appearances. Despite what it looks like, God gets the victory and God has his way. In my devotions, I've been working through Jeremiah. If you know anything about Jeremiah, you know that his ministry had no appearance of success. But because it was in obedience to God's command, it was a successful ministry. God still won. Jeremiah did right, despite the appearance and the circumstance. Jerusalem may have been leveled, Nebuchadnezzar may have had the day, but only for a while. And God's will and God's way was still accomplished. You are the weakest and the fewest for a reason. But if that makes you uncomfortable, reevaluate your faith and reevaluate your Lord. Because you are the fewest and the least, but you are His. And He didn't choose you because you were mighty. He chose you because he decided to. You are his. No glory for self. Don't say, I've saved it. I've won the day. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. But the battle belongs to the Lord. The glory belongs to the Lord. And salvation is of the Lord alone. Live it. Tell it. Love it. Rejoice in it. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, thank you for these words of encouragement. May they be light to us in darkness and strength to us in weakness. May we remember that you alone are our Savior, you alone are our Lord. Help us to tell the old, old story, to testify of your greatness, and to never be afraid of our small numbers or of the ways in which you have told us to do your will. We're not smarter than you. We don't know better. We know what you've told us, and help us to be faithful and obedient to that. Help us not to run away in fear, but to love, delight, live, and rejoice in you, your word, your instruction, your grace. May we glorify you in our worship and love you forever and enjoy you forever. For we ask this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.